So, anyways, one of my favorite characters in all of literature is a fantasy character known as Puddle Glum. Anyone know this character? Puddle Glum? Uh, here are some artist uh, depictions. You guys got that slide? He's a marsh wiggle uh, from the Silver Chair, the book The Silver Chair, one of the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, I'm not sure what a marsh wiggle is, but that's what he is. And he's easily one of the most depressing, sour characters that you can't stop loving. Uh, I mean, no matter what is happening, he just sees the worst in it. Yet it works for him. Like, it's just, it's like it's part of his charm. He always ends up saying things like this. He says, um, uh, I'm a chap who always liked to know the worst and then put the best face I can on it. Uh, one time, they even get trapped in some so sort of thing. I don't remember the context, but this is what he says. He says, uh, you must always remember that there's one good thing about being trapped down here. It'll save funeral expenses. <laughs> Which, I mean, can you be more depressing and still lovable? Another time, when the characters get into trouble, he says this. He said, steady pace now. Don't look frightened. Whatever you do, we've done the silliest thing in the world coming at all. But now that we are here, we'd best put a bold face on it. And I love this. Um, this was Puddle Glum's superpower. Uh, spoiler alert, it ends up saving them in the, in the end. All of his pessimism trained him to make the best of horrible situations. So when they get in a horrible situation, he knows how to handle it. And there's something that's really like beautiful about facing life this way. It's, there's a certain kind of strength in this. To face the worst that life has to offer and to persevere, that's one of the bravest things you can do. And that's the point of Puddle Glum. He's the bravest character in the entire book. In fact, here's how one of the characters talks about him. Uh, her name's Jill. She says, Puddle Glum, you're a regular old uh, humbug. You sound as doleful as a funeral, and I believe you're perfectly happy. And you talk as if you're afraid of everything when you're really as brave as, as a lion. As brave as a lion. We've been spending time in Ecclesiastes, and it's a book that sounds a lot like Puddle Glum. Uh, I'd say Puddle Glum and the writer of Ecclesiastes would probably be some good friends. Now, some say the, the teacher in Ecclesiastes was depressed and too pessimistic. Uh, maybe, but, but I think it's more than that. I, I think it's a little bit more like what we see with Puddle Glum. He was honest. He considered the worst case scenario not to run from it or to avoid it, but to face it. And that is a certain kind of bravery and a certain kind of strength. And that's one of the reasons why this is one of my favorite books. I love this book. I don't read it every day. That would be too much. But I do like spending time with it every once in a while. And really, it's the best way to read this book. We're going to consider the worst the world has to offer. And trigger warning, we're going to talk about some hard stuff today. Because that's what the text talks about. It's not going to be easy. Um, we will be dealing with things like depression suicide, et cetera. So I want you to know you can create, take whatever space you need. There's no, I mean, you do what you need to do. But we're going we're gonna to wrestle with what the text has to say. So we're going to consider the worst the world has to offer and try to put a bold face on it. So, so you ready? No. Well, we're going to do it anyways. Uh, Ecclesiastes is attributed to Solomon, son of David, known in the, this book as the teacher. As we discussed last week, it really means collector of sentences, which is a... Uh, going to be my future book someday, The Collection of Sentences. It's a wisdom literature. And so less like a theological book on the nature of God or a book of prayers like Psalms, it's a book of philosophy and ideas. And this is the thesis of this very uh, simple book. Everything is meaningless. Everything. Now this can be translated a couple of ways. It could mean 
everything is without meaning, doesn't have, doesn't have value, doesn't have meaning. Or it could mean that it's impossible to make meaning out of anything, so everything is absurd. In other words, it could mean nothing matters or nothing makes sense, but likely it's a little bit of both because they probably are connected to each other. And at the root of the issue is the meaninglessness of toil or work. So last week we discussed how work is frustrating because it's so hard to change anything. And once we do, most things don't last anyway. Today we're gonna look at another frustration of work. And, and this is something you guys shared last week when I asked you what makes work frustrating. One thing that makes work uh, in life in general frustrating is that around every corner, we have to deal with systems of bureaucracy, corruption, bosses, power dynamics, hoops to jump through, and layers and layers of corruption. In other words, sometimes work is frustrating, not because of the work itself, but because of the people we work for, or the people we have to work against. People in power who try to hold progress back. Here's how the teacher explains it, Ecclesiastes 4, starting with verse 1. He says, again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. There are people with power. And those without power, and those with power oppress those who don't have it, and there is no comfort for anyone. Now, that is actually what's interesting about this verse. He says that both the oppressed and the oppressor are without a comforter, are without comfort, both of them. And this is really interesting because you would think that if you have money and power that you could have all the comfort that you need, that, that everyone's working for you. You can buy or control whatever you want to make your life exactly how you want it. And it's simply not true. The teacher can see through this facade. He sees it for what, what it is. No one is free from uh, the pain of oppression, including maybe especially the oppressor. Now, this is something that Robert Caldwell, who I mentioned earlier, talked to us a, a, quite a bit about in our anti-racism training. He said to me more than once, and to our team, I believe, a couple of times, white people won't begin doing the work of dismantling white supremacy and racism until they realize how racism has hurt them. In fact, he told me this story once when he was in a room with a bunch of pastors, white and black pastors, and they wanted to address racism, a meeting that's happened a thousand times since Martin Luther King. But he looked at the white pastors in the room and he said, we won't be able to do anything until you, white pastors, recognize how racism has hurt you. Interesting perspective. How racism hurts those it is designed to benefit. In other words, living in a society that favors white people as a white person is not a blessing. It shapes our hearts and our minds in ways that hurt us and make us less human, less than we were created to be, to our own detriment. This is the thesis of this book, an anti-racism book called The Sum of Us. The book starts out by explaining this concept, talking about the history of public pools in the South. After the civil rights movement, public pools were required to integrate. That's, that's what happened in the story of integration. But instead of integrating, some cities simply drained their pools and decided to keep them from being open. They would rather not have a pool at all than to have one that's integrated with white and black kids. True story. Well, the black community wasn't going to have anything to do with that, uh, so they, they take it to court. 
pools are the livelihood of people who don't have air conditioning uh, at this time, especially when it hits 100 degrees. You guys might be familiar with what that feels like. Uh, many of you lost power at 100 degrees. Pools are great. So they, the, the, the black community takes this to court, and it goes all the way to the Supreme Court. True story. The question being considered was simple. Can white leaders in small towns shut down their public pools just to prevent them from being segregated? Here's how the US Supreme Court ruled in 1971. The city council in Jackson, Mississippi, closed four public pools and leased a fifth public pool to the YMCA, which operated it privately for whites only. Black citizens sued, but the Supreme Court and Palmer v. Thompson, you can look it up, held that a city could choose not to provide a public facility rather than maintain an uh, integrated one because by robbing the entire public, the white leaders were spreading equal harm. In other words, the Supreme Court argued that racism is okay if it hurts everyone equally. And nestled into this little ruling, we see a truth that the teacher has said thousands of years ago. Both the oppressed and the oppressor are without comfort on a hot day. Now, if you're a Grandview resident or care about Grandview, this is an important topic right now. They're talking about the pools. It's a hot, hot topic. Because uh, there was an incident at the local Grandview public pool. Um, I'm not familiar with the details, but there's a movement of concerned citizens in Grandview to no longer allow non-residents to use the Grandview pool. I don't know how, how organized this movement is, but it's a conversation that's happening. Now, the Grandview pool, I've shared this in sermons before, is one of the most diverse, integrated places in Grandview. A beautiful mix of different cultures. Uh, I've preached on this. I've celebrated this fact. Uh, I've been there myself and seen it. Uh, but being a community of residents that are 90% white, and they kick out all non-residents, who are they really kicking out? It's not the same as saying whites only, but it will have a similar effect. Now, the city hasn't done this, but I do know there are people who want it. And if those who want this get what they want, here's my point. It'll be to their own detriment. This is how one Grandview resident said recently in one of our anti-racism Facebook groups. They said, and I'm summarizing, the pool is one of the few integrated places in Grandview, one of the truly diverse places in Grandview, which means it's one of the few places that her children in Grandview can really learn how to live in a diverse world. And if you bring that to an end, you're only hurting yourselves. Oppressions of all kinds, segregation of all kinds, it hurts everyone. And until we realize that, we'll never change. You see, we like to think of the world as good and bad people, you know, superheroes and villains. But the, the teacher doesn't see it like this. There are those who are oppressed and those who, those who are doing the oppressing, but both are suffering. And the issue is much bigger than individuals. He goes on to explain it in the next chapter. He says this in chapter 5, verse 8. He says, if you see the poor oppressed in a district. So this is, this, if, if you understand this verse, you might not like this verse, but if you understand this verse, you'll understand the world. And this was thousands of years ago. This guy nailed it perfectly. He says, if you see poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still, and the increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. And if you get an audience with the king, I'll add this part, my own commentary, and you say, why don't you do something about it? I'll say one of two things. Ah, that's not how things work around here. Or two, not my problem. Well, I believe that's a cop-out. In some way, I think they're right. 
it's never going to be up to one person to fix it. It's an entire system, every part of it. You know, whenever I think about it like this, whenever I watch thrillers or detective movies investigating corruption, it's always the same story. I think it's a trope of some sort. They start with someone real low on the totem pole, you know, like a drug dealer or a sex worker, and they start digging, they realize that the corruption goes much higher than that. I don't know who they're looking for. I have a couple stories about that, I won't get into it. Uh, they realize the corruption goes much higher than that. Not just the drug dealer or the criminal, right, but the cop that he's informing for. And then they dig further and like, oh, it's not just the beat cop, but it's the lieutenant. And wait, the police chief is in it too. No, it's even worse, the mayor knew all along. And they're like always surprised. They're always surprised that corruption goes all the way to the top. Story. You know what movies I'm talking about? Have you ever seen these movies? Oh, they're always surprised. Like, uh, it might be a documentary on like how a business was corrupt, and then by the end of the documentary, you're like, wait, the CEO knew all along? There were emails? Yeah. <laughs> Even in the church. You're telling me that the Vatican knew all along what the priests were doing and worked with local dioceses to cover it up? Yeah. I hate to break it to you. You might be surprised by that. They're always surprised in the movies. The teacher isn't surprised. Thousands of years ago, he warned us. Even the kings get a share in the profit. It goes to the top. It almost always goes to the top. Because if it didn't go to the top, it would have been solved already. The problem is always systemic. And that's what makes it so hard because it's just, if it was just one bad apple, we could fire them. <laughs> but we're talking about entire systems more often than not. And how do you change systems? I'll tell you this. Sitting down one-on-one -on -one with somebody and helping them change their lives. You know, just helping them make a better decision. Gosh, it's, it's not, there's nothing more meaningful than that, to have just a positive influence on another human being. I don't always have a positive influence. Sometimes I have a negative influence. But every once in a while, I get it right. And I just have a good conversation. Somebody gets, you know, their life is better because they had a conversation with me. I'm not telling you it happens every day. But it's beautiful. And it's hard. But it's nothing compared to changing systems. Entire communities? I don't know. I mean, this is like super duper hard. <laughs> And it feels impossible. I mean, it just feels impossible. And I don't want to sound discouraged, but a lot of times I am. I hate it. And let's be honest, I could just look away and not care. Not care about what's happening over there, what's happening over there, what's happening over there. But, but, but the teacher won't let me. He's forcing us to take a hard look at a hard reality. And he's going to be honest with you. Here's how he feels about it. When entire systems are set up against us, here's how he feels. This is how bad it is. Next verse, chapter 4, verse 2, considering the oppression and corruption he sees in the world and the fact that it reaches all the way to the top, here's how he feels. And I declared that the dead who are already died, who had already died, are happier than the living who are still alive. That's how he feels about it. It's better to just give up, literally. That's what he says. Throw in the towel, he says. What would be better? He says, well, actually, verse 3, but better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. It is better to be dead than alive, and better yet, never be born. Yeah. You got to laugh, not to cry. Sounds dramatic. Surprise, though, this isn't an unusual phrase in Scripture. You can see it in Job. A story of someone who suffered greatly, he says in Job 3.11, 
He asked this question, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? He also, in Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, echoes the teacher's word when he says, cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother gave birth to me not be blessed. Jeremiah 20, 14. I had a friend once who said things similar to this. His name was Ron. And you, you remember Ron, character. He passed away a year or two ago from cancer. He had a very difficult life. At the age of five, he was abused by a pastor. For six months, he lived with the pastor. He told his mother it was happening. She didn't do anything about it. Pastor's wife knew it was happening. She didn't do anything about it. And here's the worst part. He told me that his family that he had left to live with the pastor was so violent and dysfunctional and chaotic that he was glad to be living with the pastor. His family was just that much worse. And after his pastor abused him, his pastor would lead him through repentance together. He got out of there. He grew up uh, with drugs, using whatever he could to medicate his trauma. Eventually got AIDS, and he watched countless friends die from AIDS during the epidemic in the 70s and 80s. He lived a very hard life. But late in life, he found Jesus. And it's really hard to explain how he talked about Jesus, because he was so angry at God, you can imagine, he was so angry at God. And I don't even really know how to say this. I wrote the notes, and I, I don't think it's, it, it's, it's, it's right in my, my... He was so angry at God that he's convinced that God grabbed him and saved him because God couldn't deal with how he viewed God. Does that make sense? Like, God hated Ron's view of God. And so God was like, I'm saving you. That's how Ron viewed his own salvation story. Because he hated God so much that God wasn't going to allow that to happen. And, and I believe that God wanted Ron to know that when he suffered, God suffered too. That's, that's the God we follow. Right alongside him, that God didn't want these things to happen. And so Ron loved Jesus more than anyone I know. I mean, and he loved scripture. Uh, in the end, he couldn't read, so he'd have people come over and read scripture to him. And still, every year, this guy loved Jesus, loved scripture. Every year on his birthday, he would say, I hate my birthday. Cursed the day I was born. Loved Jesus, but cursed his birthday because he had seen too much evil in the world. He had experienced too much evil in the world. He wished he had never been born. And yet, I never met someone with as much raw faith in Jesus as Ron. So much so, one of the biggest lessons I ever learned from Ron was this. Now, this is going to make some of you uncomfortable if I haven't already. This will. It still makes me uncomfortable. Ron always lived in poverty. I mean, he always had just enough. He, he worked hard. He was a carpenter. He did great work. Uh, he showed me some of the bathrooms he worked on. Uh, he brought me over to one once and, until his health failed and he couldn't do it. He was a fantastic carpenter. And uh, um, he always had enough to take care of himself. But he never got rich. And he said this about going to most churches. He said, most of the Christian churches, and I'm paraphrasing from multiple conversations I had with him, but he said this type of thing. Most of Christian churches I run across, when I get involved in their church, it just seems the middle-class Christians uh, uh, see it as their mission to help me become middle class too. Like that's their, that's their mission. And he's like, but don't they see? They should become like me. Jesus calls us to sell what we have and give it to the poor and follow him. He wasn't buying it. And that really challenges me. How, how much of our understanding of loving the poor has become trying to help them become more middle class or, or upper class as if capitalism is the good news. Oh, now, meddling. Here's what I know. I don't want to get too off, off topic. The love of money fuels a lot of the evil that's done in the world. 
It's not the only thing, but it feels a lot of oppression. The teacher seems to think so. Here's what he says, verse 4. We're talking about this because that's what the teacher talks about. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless. Chasing after the wind. Toil, achievements, and envy is what fuels a lot of these problems. He goes on, verse 5. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Now, this is, this is really crazy. We'll get even more uncomfortable here. He says, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. But that's a soft translation. The NASB gets a little closer to the text. The fools fold his hands and consumes his own flesh. The language here is cannibalism. The kind of toil and achievement and envy-driven pursuit of happiness is destroying us. We're eating ourselves up. We're consuming and consuming until we kill ourselves. And this is what he says in uh, says something similar in chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. We consume and we just want more, so we consume and we're destroying our lives. And not just our lives, but our communities. This is what destroys communities. There's a simple principle that I operate out of. And we operate out of here in Central City. It's one of my non-negotiables. I'm open to a debate on a lot of different things. I'm not debating this. Generosity is the foundation of community. We can't become a community unless we're willing to take what is ours and give it to each other. Think about it. It's the foundation of a good family, foundation of any community, foundation of any friendship. And if generosity builds community, then it's safe to say that greed destroys it. Okay. Before we get, let me pull some of these ideas together because we're, we're dealing with a lot of big stuff. When you take oppression, that's where we started, or the misuse of wealth and power, and you throw in some envy and the desire to have more and more and more and more, you'll see what happens, uh, what he means when he says that an oppressor is without comfort. Uh, You'll end up like this, verse 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son or brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless, a miserable business. He adds something to this often repeated phrase, you know, everything is meaningless. He says, this isn't just meaningless, it's miserable. This kind of living will leave you miserable. It won't just, because meaningless isn't necessarily bad. He says, everything's meaningless. Everything's absurd. But he says, this isn't just meaningless. It'll also make you miserable. It'll make you isolated alone. And really, that's the problem, isn't it? This, is, this, this kind of living, this kind of way of operating, it, it isolates us. So what do we do? Well, here's, here's how we've identified the problem. The thing that makes us, uh, this miserable business is this. You've got oppression that leads to depression or desperation that's sort of like crying out, why is this even worth it? which is fueled by greed and ultimately produces isolation, right? Uh, where you're left feeling isolated alone. That's the problem laid out in this chapter. One after the other, it just keeps building his case. These are, this is what leads to the next. So I would suggest that the solution is to start at the end, reverse it, and work our way back. First, invest in community. 
by being generous. And then invest in compassion by showing those who are being oppressed compassion in pursuit of justice, in pursuit of empathy and understanding, signing up for the cost of poverty experience to increase your compassion. Do you see what I'm saying? Come on now. And that will lead to liberation, what, the, what, what, what great uh, theologians call liberation. And it starts, though, with relationships, giving up your individualistic lives and learning to need each other. And big surprise, that's exactly what the teacher says next. He says it in probably one of the few passages you might be familiar with in Ecclesiastes, because you might have heard it at a wedding. But just for the record, the rest of this chapter you probably didn't hear at a wedding. Um, so next time you hear this passage at a wedding, you'll remember the context, and you'll be like, didn't he just say a few verses ago that it's like better not to even be born? Like, if you use this at your wedding, I'm sorry. I don't want to ruin this passage for you. But, but you should know the context. I mean, here's what he says. Here's the solution to all of this dysfunction. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can you keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So let me just... I don't want to deconstruct too much here, but this passage is not saying that three chords is like you, your husband, and the Holy Spirit. That's not what's going on here. I have heard that. What it's talking about is we are created for community. Not just with partners and spouses, but community. And it's not good for us to be alone. And I would say that community is a solution to all this. How do we overcome systems of oppression? We have to bind together. If there's ever a chance to change the world, it will be people binding together working together. Have governments or corporations ever changed without this happening? Have corrupt systems ever changed without this, without people, ordinary people, coming together to do something together? It's how we change systems, even powerful systems, because we are stronger together, or as the teacher says, a three-quartered strand is not easily broken. And here's the best part. When we do this, even if we can't change the world, at least we'll have something that often the powerful and the wealthy don't have. Friends and community. Learning to rely on other people and finding people you can trust. That's oh, the best we can do. It's like last week I said, the most meaningful thing you do in life won't necessarily what you get paid for, but by, but by who you invite at the table. And that's what we see in this passage as well. The most meaningful thing that's going to bring your life isn't all of the things that we try to fix and change in the world, but the people we share our life with. I learned this from uh, uh, Ron as well. In the end, uh, Ron got cancer. After years of abuse and suffering and drugs and AIDS, he got cancer, and that's what took his life. He got very sick. I had the privilege of driving him to the hospital for chemo a couple of times, not every time. In fact, uh, he wanted to smoke on the way to chemo. Don't give him a hard time. I mean, he's just, that's just how it was. Um, and he, but he wanted me to drive his car so that he could. And so I hopped in. His car was manual, uh, which I hadn't driven in a number of years. But I didn't know how to drive manual. But he was nervous. I didn't remember how to drive manual, which made me nervous. All that to say, I backed his car up right into a telephone pole. And uh, there's nothing quite uh, more humbling than to be forgiven for breaking a taillight by someone who's on their way to chemo treatment. Um, and he's got to forgive me. 
Needless to say, I was the passenger on the way to the hospital that day, um, and he rode in my car from that point on. You know, I wasn't the only one to walk with Ron. I barely was available. He had uh, friends. It was uh, what he valued most in life, friends, community, friends that uh, I remember flew across the country to stay with him in his final days. But, but of all of his friends, he often lamented the ones that he lost. And this, this is a challenge for me, and it's a challenge to you. So many of his friends, his, his Christian community that he had built around him, you know, they started to have children, and they were busy, baseball practice and jobs and work and taking care of their home and projects, and many of them just didn't have time for Ron. And he always understood this. He did. He always gave me grace, because that was me many times, just didn't have time. But I knew he also lamented it, because when you've lost everything and you don't have any family left, you don't have community, the church is all you've got. And Ron understood that. He counted on it. He needed it. And he sought it out from anyone who was willing. That's how I ended up as a friend. I would, I would say, because of that, he's the richest person I ever knew. And someday I hope to be as rich as him. But strangely, I'm going to have to become poor first. And that's the upside-down kingdom that Jesus has invited us into. I hope you do. Um, as well. What would it happen if we put people over profit? Community over consumption, peace over politics, generosity over greed. How would that change the world? How would it change how we lead, how we work, how we invest, how we spend time with our days? People over profit, community over consumption, peace over politics, generosity over greed. I think it's the only way to change the world. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for the bold words of the teacher in Ecclesiastes, for the way that it challenges us, for the way that it makes us uncomfortable, and for the change that you produce in the midst of that. We give you thanks for the ways that you continue to speak to us. God, help us. The world is often overwhelming, and there are times where we just feel like we can't do anything to change it. And there's so much division and so much conflict and so much bickering and arguing and debate. We love hating our enemies, Lord. Help us to love them. Help us to love loving our enemies. Show us a better way. Remind us that we're all poor and needy, in need of you and in need of each other, that we might be your community, we might be your church. We ask all this in Jesus' name.